there's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. On the day that two army corps can mutually annihilate each other in a second, all civilized nations will surely recoil with horror and disband their troops. Those are the words of Alfred Nobel, known for inventing dynamite and for establishing the Nobel Prizes. One of those prizes is, of course, the Nobel Peace Prize. Critics have said the establishment of the Nobel Peace Prize was largely a public relations move on Alfred's part. They said he wanted to rehabilitate his legacy after the destruction his inventions caused. But those who knew Alfred said he was always concerned with the advancement of peace, even as he built his fortunes on chemicals of destruction and war. However, in light of his accomplishments, do Alfred Nobel's true motivations even matter? Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Historical Figures, a ParCast original. Every other Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact, unique personality, and impression on the world around them. Our audio biographies cover big lives, but we like to focus on little-known facts. Today, we're discussing famed inventor Alfred Nobel. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we are doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com slash merch for more information. Now, back to the life of Alfred Nobel. Alfred Bernhard Nobel was born in a drafty apartment in Stockholm, Sweden, on October 21, 1833. His parents were Emanuel and Andriette Nobel. Emanuel was an inventor, engineer, and businessman. But a series of bad business deals left the family bankrupt in the year before Alfred was born. Alfred reported that he almost died at birth and was a weak infant, hardly able to feed. The building his family lived in was barely insulated, and baby Alfred was sick during most of the cold Swedish winter. As though ripped from a Hans Christian Andersen tale, Alfred's older brothers, Robert and Ludwig, sold matchsticks on street corners to help the family put food on the table. Both Emanuel and Andriette believed education was important. However, they could not afford the fees for even the least expensive state school, so Andriette opted to homeschool the children. Alfred was a quiet and curious child. He showed a keen interest in how everyday items worked, and he liked to take things apart. But financial stress and Emmanuel's short temper made home life tumultuous. In 1837, the family's fortunes began to turn when Emanuel met the governor of Turku, Finland, Lars von Hartmann. Emanuel and von Hartmann discussed Emanuel's ideas for landmines. 
always the inventor, Emmanuel had developed a way that these mines could be used in water to protect countries from attacks by sea. Von Hartmann was impressed with Emmanuel and offered to introduce him to people in Turku who may be interested in employing his inventive mind. As Emmanuel had failed at selling his ideas in Sweden, this move seemed to be his only option. Except the Nobel family could not afford for all five of them to go. So, Emmanuel set sail for Turku on December 4, 1837, alone, with plans to bring the family to Finland as soon as he could afford to. Emmanuel lived as frugally as he could in Turku, sending money home to Andriette and the children, including four-year-old Alfred. But it simply was not enough. Borrowing money, the industrious Andriette opened a small shop selling fresh foods. By working the store day and night herself, she was able to make a small profit. She was even able to send their eldest child, Robert, to the least expensive school in Stockholm. In December of 1838, after a year in Finland, Emmanuel moved to St. Petersburg, where the Russian government had a keen interest in his military products. This increased the family's income, and Alfred was finally able to enroll in school in 1840 at the age of seven. Alfred was a voracious reader before he even began school. He impressed his teachers, parents, and even his older brothers with his capacity to learn quickly and his dedication to his studies even at a young age. It was obvious that academia was where this small, frail child stood out from the crowd. In October of 1842, Emmanuel had enough money to reunite the family in St. Petersburg. Alfred, now nine years old, never entered a formal school again. Not that he wouldn't become well-educated. Emmanuel's business was doing well enough that he hired private tutors to teach his sons in their new home, rather than sending them to the local school that taught only in Russian. They studied science, languages, and literature. Just like at the state school in Sweden, Alfred established himself as a diligent student. He took on tasks beyond his assigned work. For example, as a young teenager, he translated Voltaire from the original French into Swedish and then back into French. He then compared his translation to the original to see where he could improve. But there was another very important thing to come out of Alfred's teenage education. When he was 14, he was introduced to the compound that would become his life's work. Alfred's chemistry tutor told Alfred and Emmanuel about a new substance created by Italian chemist Ascanio Sobrero. Sobrero called the colorless, oily substance pyroglycerin, but it is now known as nitroglycerin. Alfred's tutor had a small amount of nitroglycerin, which he poured on an anvil and hit with a hammer. The nitroglycerin exploded. Emmanuel, as a manufacturer of military weapons, was immediately interested in the powers of this substance. And Alfred's fascination with chemistry made him wonder about this new creation. Alfred continued his studies, and at the age of 16, he showed a strong interest in literature and poetry. Emmanuel was concerned Alfred saw this as a possible career path. While Emmanuel supported writing as an adequate hobby, he expected his hard-working, intelligent son to go into a science-related field. Emmanuel offered to send Alfred abroad to study with scientists if he gave up writing as a possible career option. 
At 17, Alfred agreed, and he was sent to Paris to work in a laboratory. While in Paris, he met Ascanio Sobrero, the inventor of nitroglycerin. In learning more about the substance, Alfred became interested in finding a way to control it. Alfred saw the practical uses of a powerful explosive in the construction of railways and roads. At the time, black powder was the most powerful tool they had to cut through rocks and mountains. But black powder also had its drawbacks. First, the blasting holes had to be dug deep and close together to get enough blasting power. Second, black powder didn't work when wet, and demolition halted if it was raining or if the supply of powder got damp. And third, it wasn't always up for the job. For example, black powder was no match for the thick granite of the Rocky Mountains. Nitroglycerin held the promise of tunneling through the Continental Divide in Colorado, paving the way for the future transcontinental railroad. Alfred could already imagine the possibilities of properly harnessed nitroglycerin. But Sobrero, who was permanently scarred by a shattered test tube during his experiments, disagreed with Alfred's theory that nitroglycerin could be made stable enough to use. After a year in Paris, Alfred traveled to the United States to spend a year studying with John Erickson, an engineer who Emmanuel knew when they both lived in Sweden. Alfred returned to St. Petersburg in 1852 at the age of 19 to work with his father. He continued experimenting with nitroglycerin, using Emanuel's factory to manufacture the substance. But he didn't have time to solely devote himself to these experiments. There was a lot of work to be done for his father. Tsar Nicholas I wanted to expand Russia's influence and borders. To this end, he began modernizing the Russian army. Emanuel's company provided guns, steam engines, and land and sea mines. In October of 1853, the Crimean War broke out. The primary issues behind the war were control of certain areas of the Holy Land and Russia's desire to expand into the weakening Ottoman Empire. Russia was facing war against an alliance of European powers, and Emmanuel's munitions business had almost more work than he could handle. He continually ordered more supplies and installed new equipment to keep up with demand. Alfred, however, could not keep up with the work physically. He grew from a sickly boy to a man who was plagued with severe digestive issues and migraine headaches. After falling ill, he was sent to a health spa to recover when he was 20 years old. But Alfred found the health spa difficult because he was ordered to rest, and Alfred did not like to rest. He was always moving, both physically and mentally. As soon as he returned home, he got back to work, helping his father's company create weapons for the Crimean War. But an industry built on war does not always last. Up next, the family's fortunes again take a turn. Now back to the story. Alfred Nobel was 22 years old and working in his father's munitions factory when the Crimean War ended in February of 1856. The resulting treaty did not favor Russia, and Emmanuel was left with outstanding bills from wartime production that Russia refused to pay. Alfred was sent to Paris and London to secure funding for the family business, but no one was interested in investing in a Russian business after the Crimean War. So in 1859, Emmanuel had no choice but to shut down his business and return to Sweden with Andriette and Emil, the youngest of the Nobel sons. 
Alfred, now 26, remained in St. Petersburg with his older brothers, where he continued his experiments. He filed patents for a gas meter and a new way to prepare gunpowder, but his main focus was on finding a way to make nitroglycerin usable. Meanwhile, back in Stockholm, Emmanuel also conducted experiments with nitroglycerin, but Alfred was a trained chemist and began to outperform his father, who was only a skilled amateur. It was in 1862, while living in St. Petersburg, that Alfred first got nitroglycerin to detonate in a controlled explosion by mixing it with gunpowder. Letters between Alfred and Emmanuel showed tension between them at this time, with Emmanuel accusing Alfred of stealing his ideas. But they quickly settled things, and Alfred moved back to Stockholm in 1863 at the age of 30. The family rented a home on a run-down estate, and Emmanuel set up a laboratory in an old carriage house on the property where he, Alfred, and Emil experimented. Neighbors complained to the landlord about the explosive noises they heard coming from the carriage house, but Emmanuel assured everyone these controlled experiments were safe. Safe or not, they were successful. In late 1863, Alfred succeeded in detonating a combination of nitroglycerin and gunpowder consistently. He began to sell the mixture as a blasting agent for industrial use, and the laboratory in the carriage house turned into a factory. Then, on September 3, 1864, the fears of the neighbors were realized. The old carriage house exploded. Five people were killed, including 21-year-old Emile Nobel. Because there were no survivors, it was unclear what caused the explosion. Based on Emmanuel's statement, it likely happened when Emil tried to find a simpler method to produce nitroglycerin. As for Alfred's feelings on the loss of his younger brother or the destruction of his factory, the record is silent. He made no mention of it publicly, and it's not mentioned in any of his private letters that have survived. Nitroglycerin production was banned within the city limits of Stockholm after this explosion, so Alfred set up his lab on a barge anchored in Lake Malellan. Almost a month to the day after the accident, Emmanuel suffered a major stroke. It took four months before he regained mobility, and during this time, Alfred began supporting his parents financially. Fortunately, he was selling more and more nitroglycerin, and he was becoming quite wealthy in the process. Alfred left Stockholm in 1865 when he was 31 years old and made Hamburg, Germany his new headquarters. But he wasn't there often. Alfred spent most of his 30s traveling around Europe and to the United States, seeing after his business ventures. The power of nitroglycerin and its low cost made it a desirable product in mineral mining, railroad construction, tunnel digging, and even oil exploration. And it didn't have the same limits as black powder, since it was already a liquid. Rain and dampness didn't cause problems. The nitroglycerin also made quick work of dense rocks, relative to the black powder, that is. 
companies quickly switched to nitroglycerin. However, in 1866, California banned liquid nitroglycerin transport after multiple accidents. On one occasion, an unlabeled crate ended up in downtown San Francisco. The crate exploded, killing 15 people and destroying nearby buildings. These accidents were widely reported in the media, and public opinion soon turned against the product in any form. After California made the transport of nitroglycerin illegal in the state, the United States federal government looked to do likewise for the entire country. The legislation also would have allowed for individuals involved in a nitroglycerin-related death to be charged with first-degree murder with capital punishment as the penalty. Alfred, now 32, traveled to the United States to lobby against the anti-nitroglycerin law. In May, he performed a demonstration in New York to show how safe nitroglycerin was. He attempted to explode the nitroglycerin in multiple ways. None of the methods, including fire and dropping a canister from a great height, succeeded in creating an explosion. This proved, in Alfred's mind at least, what he said all along. If the nitroglycerin was transported in safe canisters and properly handled, it could not accidentally detonate. But even though his demonstration made it into the media, this was only one demonstration against a number of worksite accidents. Letters to the editors of newspapers across the country showed the public still feared nitroglycerin. A month later, while Alfred was still in the United States, he received word his German factory in Krummel was leveled in an explosion. This further overshadowed his New York demonstration and seemed to seal the fate of nitroglycerin in the United States. However, Alfred had a business partner lobbying Congress on his behalf. Thanks to this, the anti-nitroglycerin law that passed just weeks after the Krumel explosion was a weakened version of what was initially proposed. Alfred's ability to sell in the United States was not impacted as greatly as he anticipated but it did renew his energies to find a safer way to manufacture, transport, and use nitroglycerin. Looking back on some of his earlier experiments, he knew he must find a solid he could mix the nitroglycerin with that made it more stable but not less effective. With the clay he gathered from along the Elbe River in Germany, he found the perfect substance. In English, we call this substance diatomaceous earth. This is a fine powder made naturally from the fossilized remains of algae. Mixing the nitroglycerin with the powder formed a paste that could be molded into sticks, matching the size and shape of drilling holes. The sticks could be detonated using a blasting cap, also invented by Alfred. In 1867, at the age of 34, Alfred patented this new product he called dynamite, from the Greek word dynamis, meaning power. With the safer product available, orders increased, and Alfred continued building factories in more than a dozen countries. Even with the continued bad press about the dangers of nitroglycerin and dynamite, there were often waiting lists at Alfred's factories for people seeking jobs. As an employer, he was known for his fair treatment of his workers. His philosophy was simple. He believed if employees had their material needs provided for, they would be more productive. 
While Alfred was generous with his employees, he was conservative with his donations. He wrote that he received around two dozen requests for donations and financial assistance a day, and he answered very few of them. When he did, it was often to a young person with a dream and a plan who needed a hand getting started. Once, he asked his housekeeper what she would like as a gift for her upcoming wedding. As a joke, she told him she wanted as much money as he made in a day. Alfred found this funny enough that he gave her what she asked for. He gifted her and her husband 40,000 francs, which is about $140,000 in today's money. Another area in which the frugal Alfred willingly spent money was the care of his parents as they aged. Several letters from Andriette exist showing how deeply grateful she was for all her little Alfred did for them. Emmanuel had never truly recovered from his stroke. He spent his final years in bed, sketching out all the inventions he was too weak to create. On September 3, 1872, Emmanuel Nobel died. Shortly after his father's death, Alfred took up permanent residence in Paris. The death of his father in 1872 and turning 40 years old in 1873 affected Alfred deeply. His letters took on a tone of melancholy, and he characterized his life as dismal. As he became more depressed, he withdrew from social engagements until he complained he only had paid servants as friends. Perhaps his loneliness motivated him in 1876 to seek out a personal secretary. He was in Vienna when he placed the ad, though the secretary was expected to relocate to Paris. The ad he placed gives us an idea of how he saw himself. Alfred referred to himself as a, quote, wealthy, highly educated, elderly gentleman. Elderly at 42 years old, mind you. His advertisement requested a lady of mature age versed in languages as secretary and supervisor of the household. This ad was noticed by the von Suttner family, who employed a governess named Berta Kinski. Berta was a 33-year-old woman who came from a noble but impoverished background. But more to the point, she and the von Suttner's 26-year-old son, Arthur, fell in love. The family did not approve of the pairing, due to Berta being from a lower noble class and because of the small dowry her family could offer. They encouraged Berta to apply for the secretarial job in an attempt to break up the relationship. Alfred was impressed with Berta's response to the ad, and after several letters back and forth, all the terms were agreed on. Berta left Vienna and Arthur for Paris. When Alfred met her at the train station, it was the first time they met in person. Though it seemed rather inconsequential at the time, this meeting sowed the seeds that led to the formation of the Nobel Peace Prize. Up next, Alfred begins two of his longest-lasting relationships. Now back to the story. When the 33-year-old Berta Kinski arrived at the train station in Paris in 1876, she was expecting what the advertisement promised, an elderly man. She was quite surprised to find that Alfred Nobel was just 10 years older than her. During her first week in Paris, Alfred spoke to Berta at length about his projects and his views on the world. He even shared some of his poetry with Berta. Alfred opened up to his new companion, and he may have been looking for more than just a secretary. While out at lunch towards the end of her first week in Paris, Alfred asked Berta if her heart was free. 
Berta explained her engagement to Arthur and how she only left Vienna to earn a living independent of his family. Days after this lunch, Alfred left for a three-week business trip. When he returned to Paris, Berta had left. She returned to Vienna to marry Arthur against his family's wishes. We don't know how Alfred responded to this sudden change, but he did not hire another secretary. That summer, he traveled to a health resort outside of Vienna. While there, he met a young woman named Sophie Hess, who worked in a florist shop. The two began a long-term relationship, though there's no indication marriage was ever a serious consideration. Sophie was only 20 years old to Alfred's 43 years. It's possible Alfred did not anticipate their relationship would last very long, seeing as he was 23 years her senior, or it could have been because he looked down on her. Sophie was uneducated and unsophisticated. Though Alfred made early attempts to turn her into the cultured woman he wanted, his letters often scolded her for not being intelligent and for wasting the money he sent her. But other letters showed affection towards Sophie and concern for her well-being. Not many of her letters to Alfred survived, but from his replies to her, we can tell she was often asking him for more money. Alfred also maintained a correspondence with Berta. Though they only spent a week together, Alfred found her to be his intellectual equal. But the relationship Alfred nurtured the most was his relationship to his work. In 1881, Alfred decided to establish a full lab in the village of Sevran, 16 kilometers north of Paris. Alfred often commuted in the morning while his assistant lived at the property full-time. But if Alfred was working late, he spent the night. Alfred once wrote, quote, Home is where I work, and I work everywhere. Alfred certainly worked more than he did anything else. Alfred's letters to Sophie and Berta complained of his declining health as he entered his 50s. His doctor sent him to a health spa for rest multiple times, but Alfred always left early to get back to work. In addition to his declining health, Alfred was constantly in one legal battle or another over patents and manufacturing rights. He often dealt with multiple legal issues in multiple countries at the same time. He also continued to receive bad press whenever there was an industrial accident involving dynamite. The stress certainly affected him, and we can see it prominently in something Alfred wrote in 1887. His brother Ludwig was compiling the family's history. He wrote to Alfred asking him to write a short autobiography. Alfred, then 54 years old, wrote in reply. Quote, Alfred Nobel, pitiful creature, ought to have been suffocated by a humane physician when he made his howling entrance into this life. Greatest weaknesses? Having neither wife and kids, nor sunny disposition, nor hearty appetite. Important events in his life? None. Oh, well, that speaks for itself. The following year, Ludwig died. There is a common story that one French newspaper mistook the news and ran an obituary saying Alfred was the one who died. This obituary was even less flattering than Alfred's own reflections on his life. It was titled, The Merchant of Death is Dead, and called Alfred, quote, a man who became rich by finding ways to kill more people faster than ever before. Horrified at his legacy, Alfred supposedly decided in that moment to do something to change how he would be remembered. 
But historians cast doubt on this story. The publication most sources claim printed this obituary never existed. There's no evidence this ever happened, and it's likely just a legend. The year after Ludwig's death, Alfred faced the most challenging loss of his 56 years. His mother, Andriette, died at the age of 84. Alfred wrote that his mother was the only person he ever knew who did not attempt to use him in any way. This loss was deep for the lonely Alfred. But even in his grief, Alfred did not rest for long. He continued to travel to his factories and, when home in Paris, he worked tirelessly in his lab. By the late 1880s, Alfred was practically living full-time at Sevran to remain close to his lab and his work. One of his most notable works was around the development of a smokeless powder called baulistite. Prior to smokeless powder, guns used black powder as a propellant for ammunition. It was also used in cannons. Black powder left behind a smoky residue that was corrosive to guns. It also filled battlefields with smoke, making it difficult for soldiers to receive visual commands. This was a common concern, and Alfred was not the only scientist who worked on smokeless powder. He wasn't even the first to invent a smokeless gunpowder, but he developed what he felt was a superior product. Alfred was given permission to use the French shooting ranges to test his powder, and in 1889, he offered the patent to ballastite to the French government. As they already used a similar product, they turned him down. So when Italy was interested in ballastite, Alfred made a deal that he would deliver 300 tons of ballastite to Italy, and he would manufacture it at an Italian factory. To Alfred, this was just business, but France did not see it quite that way. They saw it as treason. Since 1882, Italy was in what was called the Triple Alliance with Germany and Austria-Hungary. Germany and Austria-Hungary promised to assist Italy if France attacked unprovoked, and Italy promised the same assistance to Germany in return. The sale of gunpowder to a country aligned against France was seen as disloyal, and because Alfred had used French shooting ranges to test his powder, he was also accused of espionage. The media was relentless in their reporting of Alfred as a potential traitor and spy. The accusations weren't just a blow to Alfred's already delicate self-esteem, but they also impacted his business ventures. Suspicious of espionage, the police raided Alfred's laboratory. Alfred's lab was his refuge when the world overwhelmed him. His retreat was compromised and his ballastite confiscated. Alfred was not brought up on any charges, but he was banned from running his experiments in France. He had no choice but to close the lab at Sevran. In 1890, at 56 years of age, Alfred left his adopted hometown of Paris and moved to San Remo, Italy in a self-imposed exile. He built a new lab and went back to work as quickly as he could. He also read a new novel called Lay Down Your Arms by his longtime friend and correspondent, Berta von Suttner. Though fiction, the book had a strong message of peace and pacifism. Alfred praised the book in a letter to Berta. Alfred and Berta wrote back and forth about topics of peace and war for years. And these letters show us that peace was a topic Alfred thought of often, and he supported what he called Berta's war against wars. 
yet he continued to seek patents on his ideas related to weapons technology, like rockets and cannons, even as he sent donations to organizations promoting peace. A skeptic might see the support of peace causes as his penance for the non-peaceful things he invented, but Alfred did not see it this way. He held the belief that the scientist was not responsible for how their invention or discovery was used. But this belief also lacked a certain self-awareness. Alfred wasn't merely the scientist. He was also the salesman who generally knew pretty well how his inventions were being used. He certainly knew when someone was using him. In late 1890, Alfred ended his long relationship with Sophie Hess after she told him she was pregnant and the baby wasn't his. Alfred wrote to her that there is only one thing he could not forgive, and that was being made to look ridiculous. Though Alfred ended the relationship, he continued to provide her with a fixed amount of financial support. In January of 1893, when Alfred was 59 years old, we see the first inklings of what would become the Nobel Peace Prize. Alfred wrote a letter to Berta explaining his plan for a prize. It would go to the man or woman who contributed most effectively to the cause of peace in Europe and would be funded by his estate after his death. Alfred's health was quickly declining, so what would happen to his wealth when he passed was frequently on his mind. In his later years, he began conceiving a grand plan. Meanwhile, in 1895, at the age of 62, Alfred was prescribed a medication for his heart condition. He had been suffering from angina for years. Angina is often a symptom of heart disease, and it causes pressure and pain in the chest. At the time, the cause was unknown, but we now know it's caused by decreased blood flow to the heart. The medication Alfred was prescribed? Nitroglycerin. Alfred wrote, quote, Isn't it the irony of fate that I have been prescribed nitroglycerin to be taken internally? While the medication helped with the symptoms of heart disease, it was not a cure. Alfred was often too weak to work in the lab. He turned back to his writing to keep his mind active. On December 7, 1896, Alfred suffered a stroke in his home in Italy. Three days later, he died at the age of 63. When Alfred's will was retrieved from the bank vault that stored it, it shocked the family. None of his family was aware of the contents of this will, written just a year and a half before his death. His nieces and nephews assumed their wealthy uncle, who had no children of his own, would leave the bulk of his estate to them. Several friends and employees also expected not to be forgotten. Alfred didn't forget any of them. However, he left less than 10% of his wealth to his heirs. Alfred directed the rest of his wealth to go into a fund. The money was to be invested, and the interest every year would be paid out in the form of prizes to people who had conferred the greatest benefit to mankind in the previous year. The prizes were to be awarded in five different areas, chemistry, medicine, physics, literature, and peace. Alfred also had one final bit of direction for the awarding of these prizes. He stated it was his desire that the prize go to the most worthy person, regardless of nationality. While we look back and see this will as the beginning of some of the most prestigious awards in the world, Alfred's heirs looked at the will in horror. 
Alfred's entire estate was worth, in today's money, 250 million US dollars. Yet he left his six nieces and nephews the equivalent of about 6.5 million to split between them. He left additional money to servants, friends, and the continued payment of the annuity to Sophie. Two of Alfred's nephews petitioned to have the will declared invalid, and others in Sweden, including Swedish king Oscar II, called the will unpatriotic. They believed any prize should be restricted to Swedish recipients. Sophie also contacted the executors of the will, demanding more money. When she was told no, she produced over 200 letters Alfred sent her over the previous 20 years. These letters contained many of Alfred's most private thoughts, and they showed him to be a moody and harsh man at times. The letters also showed Alfred's anti-Semitic views. Sophie threatened to publish the letters if she was not given more money. The executors of Alfred's will agreed to buy the letters from her in an attempt to spare Alfred's personal reputation. Another complication to the will was a logistical one. The organizations Alfred selected to award the prizes had not been consulted prior to Alfred's death. The will was as much a surprise to them as anyone. And there was no one to administer the funds aside from the executors of the will. Alfred essentially left his fortune to a foundation he neglected to create. It took over three years for the legal issues to be resolved, but on June 29, 1900, the Nobel Foundation was established and all the awarding bodies agreed to fulfill Alfred's will. On December 10, 1901, the fifth anniversary of Alfred's death, the first Nobel Prizes were awarded. In 1905, the first woman to receive the Nobel Peace Prize was none other than the woman who challenged Alfred's thoughts on war and peace the most, Berta von Suttner. A sixth prize was added in 1968, thanks to a donation by Sweden's Central Bank. The Nobel Memorial Prize in Economic Sciences is awarded alongside the Nobel Prizes by the Nobel Foundation. Today, the Nobel Prizes include a medal, a scroll, and a financial reward. In 2018, the prize was worth 9 million Swedish kroner, which is nearly 1 million U.S. dollars. Alfred's vision of a truly worldwide prize has allowed for achievement to be recognized in all corners for 117 years. In the end, it may not matter if Alfred's dream of a peace prize was from a deep desire to see peace, as his friends have said, or if it was from a desire to rehabilitate his legacy, as his critics have said. Either way, this complicated man, who once described himself as a well-intended misanthrope, has furthered the cause of peace simply by elevating the voices of those advocating for it. Thanks for tuning in to Historical Figures. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Historical Figures, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. 
Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Dick Schroeder. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. Historical Figures is written by Charlie Worrell and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy. <laughs>